Thank you. Good morning. Good morning. Isn't it exciting, these gift days? I'm personally very excited. And um, it is hugely encouraging to see what God is doing among us. Um, the gift day, we're not going to announce the totals for a couple of weeks yet, just to keep us in suspense. Um, but thank you so much for those of you who have given already. And it's not just those who've given into the gift day. Last October, we asked people to um, increase, if they were able to, uh, their monthly offering to God through this church. And your generosity is astonishing. Uh, I don't know the exact figures to head, percentage-wise, but we, we have increased by a thousand pounds a month in the last six to nine months alone, just through your generosity, which is phenomenal. That means that we're not able to just buy a building, we're able to pay for the upkeep of it when we've got it, which is very important. We don't want to be like a dog chasing a fire truck, only to catch it and go, what do we do now? Um, so uh, thank you all so much. I'm sure that's what dogs think when they catch fire trucks. Um, so thank you all so much for your generosity. It is a real... Um, kind of blessing and it's a privilege of mine today to speak to you uh, in the next in our teaching series. As Amy mentioned, we've been talking about the signs of God's kingdom. In other words, what it looks like when God is in charge of a person's life. If you would have been around the streets of Judea in 30 AD, the overriding prevailing message of Jesus at the time was the kingdom of heaven is here which everybody at the time understood, but most of us go, that's lovely, what does it mean? And so we've been spending um, the term really looking at all the different things that that means, taking a, a sign and looking at it over two weeks. Today, we are looking at the sign of hope to those in need, the sign of good news to the poor. And we're going to look at that by looking at Jesus and the poor, the gospel or garbage, and what about us today? So let's get cracking. Years ago, uh, in Ethiopia, when Ethiopia was under a Marxist regime, the church had to meet in secret as underground churches. Periodically, church leaders and groups of churches were broken up and individuals were arrested and thrown into prison. The prisons in Ethiopia were horribly overcrowded and unspeakably foul. However, the other prisoners eagerly awaited and looked forward to the arrival of Christians into the prisons. Because when a Christian came into prison, they would often be visited by members of their churches and their churches would look after them with support in the form of clothing and food. But they would not just provide enough for one individual, but often for many in the, prison, in the prisons. And so in Ethiopia at that time, it became the prisoner's prayer, God, send a Christian to prison. God send a Christian to prison. In Acts chapter 4, uh, the, when the Bible records for us what the first church was like after Jesus went to be with the Father, how the first Christians organised themselves, it said of that church that there was not a needy person among them because of their generosity towards one another. And the church and Christians have always had a reputation for caring for and loving and looking after the poor in the societies. In fact, in the ancient church, in the original church, there was an ancient church document um, that gives instructions to meeting leaders on how to conduct their services. And there's instructions to bishops on how to, what to do if a rich or wealthy person enters your meeting. And the instruction was that you're not to interrupt the meeting in any way. However, if a poor or needy person entered a meeting, they were to stop and do whatever was needed to accommodate for and care for that individual's needs. 
in the ancient world where the seating chart was neatly arranged between the powerful and the least powerful, the important and the unimportant, the Christians broke into the scene and because of Jesus' teaching began to change the way the seating chart of society was put together and operated. And in in one famous church council in 325 AD, the Council of Nicaea, it was decided at that council gathering of church leaders that wherever a cathedral existed, there must also be a hospice. It was Christians who were the first to develop and establish charitable institutions, places for caring for the poor and needy in the societies. Why? Why is the question. Well, Frederick Nietzsche said that the god Zeus created hope in, or gave people hope in order to torture them. Is that why? Is that why Jesus helped the needy? Is that why churches helped the needy? In order to torture them with a little bit of hope? No, it isn't. It won't surprise you to hear. Let's look at Jesus and the poor. Even people who know very little about Jesus know that he was a good man who did good things who cared for people, who taught um, love and kindness of your neighbours and towards your fellow man. They know as well that he was a man who loved the marginalised and the downtrodden in his society. In the way that Jesus behaved, he spent time with the poor. He preferred or gave preferential treatment to the poor in his society, in the way that he behaved, but also in the things that he said. In Luke chapter 6, Jesus said, Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Blessed are you who are hungry, for you shall be satisfied. In Luke 14, he said, When you give a dinner or banquet, do not invite your friends or your brothers or your relatives or your rich neighbors. But when you give a feast, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed. In Luke chapter 12, he said, Sell your possessions and give to the needy. Provide for yourselves with money bags that do not grow old, with treasure in the heavens that does not fail, where no thief approaches and no moth destroys. So the things that he said and the way that he behaved, but also with his character towards individuals, he was a man who loved the poor. In Matthew chapter 9, it says that when Jesus saw the crowds, he had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. And in a letter to the early church, the Apostle Paul writes in 2 Corinthians and says that Jesus, though he was rich in glory with God the Father, became poor for your sake, in order that he might make many rich spiritually. Jesus as a man was able to engage the powerful and the influential and the educated of his day. He was able to answer their questions and hold court with them, even as a young boy. However, he was also known for giving time to, and as I say, preferring at times, the company of the poor and the needy. And in three short years, Jesus made such an impression on his society and on the world that his influence and his Implications are still being felt today. One follower of Jesus, a man named Jean-Henri Dunant, couldn't stand the sound of the wounded and the dying on the battlefield. And so in the 1860s, he created an organization that became known as the Red Cross. One writer says, every time you see the symbol of the Red Cross, you're seeing a thumbprint of Jesus in the world. Jesus' message to the world was that the kingdom is here, meaning God the King has returned. 
And what that means is the downcast and the downtrodden are to be lifted up. Good news is to be preached, to declare to the poor in spirit, to the poor in material wealth and possessions, to the, to the poor emotionally. That's the message of God's kingdom. Jesus, as a man, identified with the poor. He says of himself that he was often homeless and penniless. He gave up, laid aside his privilege in order to show the treatment that he did to the poor. In the Psalms, it says that Jesus did this not just because of who Jesus was, but because of who God is. In the Psalms, it says that God is a God who is near to the brokenhearted. That he's a God who saves the crushed in spirit. This isn't garbage. This is the gospel. In his book, Honor and Shame, Roland Muller talks about the different cultures in the world and describes how one man took offense at the behavior of Jesus and the behavior of God in the Bible. He writes this. He says, Muhammad was a Jordanian friend of mine. He worked for the post office and the secret police. His job was to read mail that came into the country where I was working. After a while, he discovered that the mail that came to my postbox was rather interesting, and he put into motion a plan to meet the owner of the postbox. It wasn't long before he offered to relieve the guard at the post office door, and that evening he saw me take mail from my postbox. The next day, I returned, and Mohammed made his move. We met, and a friendship developed. Soon, Mohammed had a copy of the Bible to read. One night, Mohammed arrived at my house, obviously agitated. After the traditional cup of tea, Mohammed closed the windows to my living room and sat close beside me, speaking almost in a whisper. His reading of the Bible had progressed smoothly until he arrived at 1 Samuel 2.8. It was Hannah's song of praise to God for giving her baby Samuel. When Mohammed arrived at verse 8, he found something that he couldn't cope with. Hannah said, he, God, raises the poor from the dust and lifts up the needy, beggars in the Arabic Bible, from the ash heap. He seats them with princes and, he, and has them inherit a throne of honour. Muhammad threw the Bible down on the coffee table. No, he said emphatically, this cannot be true. A beggar is a beggar, a prince is a prince. This is garbage. As I stared at Muhammad's face, I suddenly saw a truth I'd not seen before. This wasn't garbage. This was the gospel. This is the hope that Jesus came to bring. That this is who our God is. That no matter who you are, God is here to lift you, the needy, out of the ash heap of life and give you a seat of honour and privilege. To those who are emotionally poor or spiritually poor, to those who've been abused by life, chewed up and spat out, to those who feel like broken and damaged goods, Jesus comes to speak good news, a message of hope. And he didn't just speak it, he backed it up as well with what he did, the way that he behaved and his eventual death and resurrection on the cross. To those who are materially poor, whether you're materially poor because of, your, because of what's been done to you, because you've been oppressed by an unjust system, because you're trapped in poverty, or whether you're poor because of how you've behaved, 
Maybe you've done something irresponsible, made unwise choices. Whether you're poor because you're a victim or because you're responsible, Jesus comes to say the same thing to you. To the deserving and to the undeserving, Jesus' message is, God is near and is here to lift you out of that poverty. This isn't, go- this isn't garbage. This is the gospel message. This is good news. And it's this good news that changed the world. It's this good news that brings dignity to people in society, no matter who they are, no matter what part of society they find themselves in. Jesus' message brings dignity to those on the margins. Consider Jesus' society. Jesus brought dignity and honour to children, to silly, stupid, pathetic children to those whom his society deemed were unimportant because they were unimpressive. In fact, a Greek philosopher of the time, a man named Plutarch, he once wrote that the child is more like a plant than a human being. doesn't deserve any rights. To those, Jesus said, the kingdom of heaven belongs to them. And actually, because of Jesus' words, the church invented the term godparents. In a society that didn't value children, Christians appointed a godparent to look after children in the event of their parents dying. That's where it comes from. The church took Jesus' words seriously. But not just to children, to women as well. In a society that didn't value women at all, in a society where women were the victims of patriarchy or of male dominance, he gave them rights and power in many ways. One of them, he tightened the divorce laws of the time to protect women. To those who are victims of oppression, to those who were um, sentenced to death and humiliation publicly, Jesus brought them honour and took their shame away, as in the case of the woman caught in the act of adultery. Jesus included women in his troop of followers. He allowed women to sit at his feet and learn from him alongside the men. And it was women that the Bible records for us were the first to discover the resurrection on Easter Sunday. In a society that didn't value women, in a society that said the testimony of a woman cannot be trusted, the Bible says it was women that discovered the most historically significant event in the history of the world. In fact, the writer John Ortberg, he said that Jesus bestowed dignity, worth and honour on not only children, but on every human being, whether healthy, sick, male or female. The autistic or Down syndrome or otherwise disabled child the derelict or wretched or broken man or woman who has wasted his or her life away, the homeless, the utterly impoverished, the diseased, the mentally ill, the physically disabled, exiles, refugees, fugitives, even criminals and reprobates. He says, every one of them looks different to us because of Jesus. But not just to children and women, to slaves as well. In the ancient world, the slave or household servant was given the title non habens personum, which is a phrase that literally means not having a person. To those non-persons in his society, Jesus gave dignity. I want to read, from you from the, read for you from the Gospel of John in chapter 13. This is what it says. Now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, 
Having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. During supper, when the devil had already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come from God and was going back to God, rose from supper. He laid aside his outer garments and taking a towel, tied it around his waist. Then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel that was wrapped round him. He came to Simon Peter, who said to him, Lord, do you wash my feet? Jesus answered, what I'm doing you don't understand, but afterwards you will understand. Peter said to him, you shall never wash my feet. Jesus answered him, if I do not wash you, you shall have no share with me. Simon Peter said, Lord, not just my feet only, but my hands and my head as well. In other words, give me a bath. And then in verse 34, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you're my disciples, if you have love for one another. In a society that considered a slave a non-person, Jesus adopted the uniform of a slave and washed his disciples' feet. To those who had no worth, no dignity, Jesus time and time again bestows dignity, worth and honour on them. We're in a society that, in a civilization that assumes that human rights are a, are a given. It's just, they're self-evident to all. It's not true. They're not self-evident to all. They're self-evident to us in the West because we're living in the wake of Jesus' teaching to the poor, to the marginalised. We live in the wake of Easter Sunday. We live in the wake of Jesus coming to bring hope to those in need. The gospel of the kingdom, a sign of the kingdom, is the sign of good news being preached to the poor. In the early church, it wasn't uncommon for a slave to have one of his masters, a man, more, a man richer and more powerful than himself, to get on his knees, take a basin and towel and to wash his feet. This isn't garbage. This is the gospel. This is good news. So that's Jesus and the poor. That's the gospel. But what about us today? There is a call on us, the church today, to be those who love and serve those around us. In Britain today, 21st century Britain, Jesus' words about the kingdom have a huge challenge to us. They ought to still be felt with that same challenge. In 2011, uh, research by the Organisation for Economic Cooperation and Development Group revealed that inequality between the richest and the poorest has risen faster in Britain than any other developed country since 1975. A friend of mine working for a family's charity describes what he calls a tidal wave of need coming upon society in the form of underprivileged children and families. Even in Seaford, that is largely an affluent town, According to the 2011 census, almost a third of households in this town live, be live below the mean income average for the UK. Poverty, the needy, those in need, are around us. They are us. Jesus said to his disciples, let's look at this, what he said in verse 34. He said, 
as I have loved you. Next slide. Let's focus on this one. You are to, oh, it didn't come up very clear. You are to love one another. As I, as I have loved you, you're to love one another. How have I loved you? He's just adopted the garb of a slave and washed his disciples' feet. It was said of the early church that not a needy person was found among them. The sign of the kingdom of poor and hope to the needy starts at home. It starts in the community of believers that God has placed you. It starts in the church. We're to love one another in the way that Jesus has loved us. The church is a remarkable idea. Not this church, but the church is a remarkable idea. A community of people made up of individuals from every strata of society. The wealthy and the poor, uneducated, uneducated, old and young, thrown together with the news, you're a family. Go and behave like it. And I'm, you know, I'm sure many of us will have examples of how the church has got it wrong and hasn't behaved like the family. But it's still a remarkable idea. And by and large, in my experience, it is beautiful when the church loves one another, looks after each other. I mean, just last week, some friends told me about a gift that they received to help with their need in this church. On what we've been calling gift day, the day that we've all been given money to a building, some individuals gave money not just to the building, but to help someone in the church that they knew was in need. This is the kind of people that we are. I mean, the church is not just a remarkable idea, it's a remarkable group of people to belong to. Amy and I were discussing this every week. We were walking through town, going for a coffee, and just reflecting. It is bonkers what the gospel does. I'm in a, I'm in a community of people who look forward to giving away money and make it their goal to give away more and more money throughout their lives. It's just bonkers. When I talk to my family who aren't believers, or my friends who aren't believers, and I tell them, Oh, yeah, we raise this money for this, or people give money for this, or people give this kind of money. They're just staggered. They just think it's ridiculous. And it is ridiculous. That's the point. The church is a ridiculous community, made possible, created only because we have been first loved by someone who gave us his everything. I mean, what's it for me to give away an extra 10 or an extra 100 quid? It doesn't matter. It's all his anyway. Jesus has given us everything. And he's put me in a community of people who are different enough from me that I get to learn to love others in a way that he's loved me by learning to love people who I wouldn't otherwise have the opportunity to rub shoulders with. What an opportunity. I'm in a church, small though we are, I'm in a church that has at least 15 different nationalities represented in it. It's remarkable. I get to help South Africans. I get to help people from Essex in the same breath. All the nationalities of the world are represented, not just those from Sussex. Isn't it remarkable? In fact, I married someone from Essex just to show how charitable I am. <laughs> I'm going to face this way from now on. <laughs> As a church, we don't just meet on Sundays. We meet midweek. And in midweek in our groups is the primary way that we develop some of these relationships and get to know one another better. It's where we learn about needs in individuals' lives. It's where we're able to encourage and pray for one another. If you're not in a group, please do what you can to be part of a group. We're in a church where we are to spur one another on to good works, the Bible says, to honour one another, 
to encourage, to strengthen one another, to lift one another up with our words. I'm sure we're, we've all been in those work environments, maybe you are in those work environments, where it is a toxic environment in terms of the way people speak about one another. There is competitiveness and backbiting and nitpicking in our organisations, in our families. We live in a society where dishonour flows like water. We dishonour our leaders. Every comedian, if they're worth their salt, takes the mick out of our political figures. It's just what we do in public discourse. It's not what we do in the church. The church is a place where we honour and encourage and lift up even the most vulnerable and needy and marginalised in our group. So Jesus says, as I've loved you, no love one another. But this challenge, he says, as I have loved you, extends not just to the church, but to the world. Because we have a God who serves. We have a God who isn't like the image of the Buddha, whose eyes are closed to the suffering of the world deep in contemplation. We have a saviour whose image before the world is of a man being murdered on a cross for the sins of the world. Jesus rolls up his sleeves, gets his hands dirty, and then he says to the church, come and join me. William Booth, the founder of the Salvation Army, he once um, wrote some essays that transformed attitudes towards the poor in Victorian England. And he said this, When in the streets of London... A cab horse trips and falls and lies stretched out in the midst of the traffic. There is no question of debating how he came to stumble before we get him on his legs again. If not for its own sake, then merely in order to prevent an obstruction to the traffic. William Booth said, we treat horses like that, but people, we say, it's their fault. They need to help themselves. Tim Keller, um, writing a book called Generous Justice, he recounts the time that as a church... Um, the deacons in the church got together some money to give away to the needy. And they gave one particular sum to a particular woman in their community who was in quite a lot of need. Um, she had a lot of outstanding bills, and so the church gave her money to pay her bills. The church then found out that she was still needy because she didn't spend any of the money they gave her on their bills. Instead, she spent it on clothes and on gadgets and on taking her kids out for restaurants, for dinner at fancy restaurants. The deacons, or one deacon in particular, one leader in the church, was furious. He said, this was God's money and she wasted it, he said. No way should we give her any more. Eventually, they went round to see this lady and spoke to her about it. And what she said was this. She said the reason she did it was because she, as a single mum, felt guilty about the kind of childhood she was giving her kids. She said it's so hard being the child of a single mum in this town and not being able to buy your kids nice things. Does that excuse what she did? Don't know. But certainly you understand why she did what she did. Unfortunately, the church often like the world because we often get our opinions informed more, we're often informed more by our newspapers than we are by the Bible. And so often as Christians, we can behave like that towards one another. We judge from a distance. Instead, when you walk towards a mess and you ask questions and you show the love of Christ, you find out the bigger story. And this deacon, in fact, who said this was God's money was right. It was God's money. But it's all God's money. All the money that you spend is God's money. And I waste money every month 
on a new gadget or a new download on iTunes or some chocolate or a takeaway. I waste my money. I squander it. We all do. It's all God's money. Our media likes to, likes to talk a lot about skivers. And the common perception is often a battle between scroungers versus strivers. Are you someone who works hard or are you just someone who's just sponges off the state? In 2012, one journalist for The Guardian said that instead of being disgusted by poverty, we are increasingly being disgusted by the poor themselves. Shouldn't be for the church. The Gift Day video that we've, we've shown every week for the past month, you probably can recite the script by hand. Part of the reason we've shown it every week isn't to try to rinse as much money out of people as possible. It's because that video, I think, contains a massive part of the vision of what we're about. In it, we say, we're here to love and serve the people of this town. Jesus adopted the garb of a slave. The church are also meant to be the servants and slaves of their town. We're not here to pass judgment. We're not here to condemn or to criticize. We're here to love and serve the people of this town. We're here to reach those who don't know Jesus. We're here to reach them with the message of God's good news and of God's love for them in Christ. A few weeks ago, there was this um, gig up in Manchester for uh, the Manchester bombings. And, and Justin Bieber was one of the acts performing. Uh, in between one of his songs, Justin Bieber gave a little, I suppose you'd call it a sermonette about God to the crowd. And he told them about a God of love. And my friend who's a school teacher said that the next day the kids were talking about that message a lot. Time and time again, I have people who aren't Christians express amazement and longing for the message of Christianity. But they don't really know that the message of Christianity is the message of Christianity because as far as they're concerned, the church is this and the God of love is this and they would love to get to know the God of love but they've never met him and they've never seen him in the church and they've never, I don't know. I've had family members or friends of my family come to me and say, after just a, a standard church service that we think is a standard church service, say, I would go to church if it was like that every week. To which we have to say, it is like that every week. We talk about God's love and God's goodness and God's forgiveness every week. There is a town that is longing to hear about a God who loves them, but they've never met a Christian who will serve them long enough so they're able to hear the message. As John Maxwell, the leadership guru, says, and people hear what you, I can't hear what you say because what you are speaks much louder than what you say, or something like that. Or, or another one, another phrase, if you like them, is and people don't care how much you know until they know how much you care. The church, we're here to love and to serve the people of this town, to introduce them to the God who loves them. The reason we're buying a building isn't to make ourselves comfortable. Fat and plump and have a property and oh, we're now property tycoons in this town. Philip, man, move aside. The reason we're getting a building is to have a base. The reason we're praying for a building is to have a base, a home, out of which we're able to reach the marginalized. We're able to lift up the needy. We're able to speak words of life and love to those who've written themselves off. We're here to provide community for the lonely. And we're here to provide family for the isolated. We're, we're here to be mums and dads to children. We're here to be brothers and sisters to those in need. We're here to be grandparents. We're here to 
be the family of God and to learn how to do that together in order that we might also then be a family to the town. The purpose of a family isn't only to look after its own. The purpose of a family is to provide shelter and shade to those in the sun, to those in need. One academic writer, a man named Russell Reno, he says this, a Christian who hopes to follow the teachings of Jesus need to reckon with a single fact about poverty in our societies. Its deepest and most debilitating deficits are moral, not financial. He says the most serious deprivations or deprivations are cultural, not economic. Stay with me. Many people are living at the bottom of society and yet have mobile phones, flat screen TVs and some of the other goodies of consumer culture and yet their lives are a mess. And then this is the key bit. Want to help the poor? By all means, pay your taxes and give to charitable agencies and provide for social services. By all means, volunteer in a soup kitchen or help build houses for those who can't afford them. But you can do much more for the poor simply by getting married and remaining faithful to your spouse. Have the courage to use old-fashioned words such as chaste and honourable, put on a tie, turn off the trashy reality TV shows, sit down to dinner every night with your family, stop using expletives and exclamation mark, as exclamation marks and go to church. He says, you want to help the poor? Do all those things for sure. But what, what you are and how you live has much more of a bearing on those around you than all of the charitable giving in the world. Love those in your circle of influence. Serve them Coach them, encourage them, give your time to them. And stop using expletives as exclamation marks, Chris. Not you, obviously. (laughs) Jesus said, as I have loved you, so love others. He demonstrated what he meant by that sermon, by washing their feet. But as his friends would see him in a few days' time, or a few hours' time, he loved them by giving up his life for them. Jesus allowed himself to be handed over to the authorities. He allowed himself to be treated as a a scumbag, as the dirt of the earth, as filth. He allowed them to pull at his beard. He allowed them to pierce his brow with thorns. He allowed them to beat him, to whip him, to mock him. He allowed them to treat him like the abused in society, like the scum of the earth. He allowed them to treat him like those about whom people hide their faces. He allowed them to treat him like a homeless person begging on the street that others walk past and say, oh, it offends me. It reminds me of my guilt. He allowed them to treat him like that. And as he died on the cross, some of his last words were, Father, forgive them, for they don't know what they're doing. And he showed that his death wasn't just for those whose feet he had washed. His death was for the world. His death was for this town. His death was for you. His death was for those who don't know him. His death was for those who give two fingers to God and don't care much for religion. His death was for the unchurched and the non-churched and the never going to church. His death was for those whom... Like some of my friends say, I wish I could believe in this God. He died for them. His death was for those who say, I'm never going to believe in this God. He did it for them. God became the servant and the slave of the world. And he says to his people, as I've loved you, now 
love one another. Love one another. This isn't garbage. This is the gospel. Let's pray together. Father, we, each one of us, have offended you and do offend you and do live lives in opposition to you. Each one of us are spiritually poor, bankrupt. Each one of us, God, are emotionally damaged goods, needy individuals. And yet you have forgiven us. You entered our poverty in order to make us rich in God. Thank you, Father, and ask that you'd help us as your people to hold close to you, to learn to love one another and to show to the world how brilliant your experiment and idea of the church actually is and can be. We ask, God, that you would give us as individuals influence in this town and a heart to love this town, and not just this town, and care for seafood, we care for the individuals. Father, we pray for our neighbours who don't know you. God, those people that I so easily walk past in the street because I can't be bothered to get to know them. God, soften our hearts. We pray that the kingdom sign of good news to the poor would be heard from this community. We know, Father, that as individuals, we're the closest thing to a Bible or to a gospel that these people in this town will ever get. And we ask that you would not cr- help us to not be crippled by that weight, but instead to celebrate it, to cherish it, to relish in it, because we know that you've put your spirit in us and that you have made us effective witnesses and ambassadors to the gospel. Amen.